Welcome, everybody, to the Junction City Podcast. Um, coming to you with a special episode. We're out of our normal rotation, but this is, a, this is a special one. And so we wanted to bring you a little bit of information this week about the upcoming Juneteenth celebration that will be here in Weber County and online. And so in order to do that, we invited a couple of guests from the community to explain kind of what Juneteenth is and what the celebration will be and uh, get into some of the history and a number of other issues that surround race relations in Weber County and beyond. So with us today, uh, Ms. Betty Sawyer. Uh, JC Peeps know you well, Ms. Betty, by now, but we're grateful for you being willing. And uh, we have a new guest, for, uh, first time on the show, Dr. Wesley Boykin. Dr. Boykin, thanks for joining us as well. Welcome. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. Thank you. Good to have you both. Thank you. Glad to be In addition, uh, we have the, our, our regular folks. We have uh, with us two. Oh, yeah, John line. Miles. Dan John Martinez. Miles. I don't feel like saying my name. Someone else say my name. Say it. Say it. She's Megan, Megan Sanders. Sanders. Somebody else. Megan Sanders. <laughs> no, don't say it that way. <laughs> Good. So usual cast of characters. We got a full show for the special episode, which I'm really, uh, I'm really happy about. But uh, so because this is a special show, we don't really have anything like we normally do. We're just going to get straight into it. So, Miss Betty, uh, I thought maybe I'd ask you to begin just a little bit. You introduced yourself the last episode uh, where we talked about the impact of COVID-19 on uh, the communities of color in Weber County. I hope that you might uh, introduce yourself again to the JC peeps, just in case they might've forgotten this time. So good evening, Betty Sawyer. I am the president of the Ogden branch of the NAACP, I'm the nation's oldest civil rights organization. I work as the community engagement coordinator at Weber State University in access and diversity. And I run a local nonprofit that's been around for over 30 years called Project Success Coalition. And we do the Juneteenth Festival along with other cultural arts events and health prevention education, to name a few. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ms. Betty. Uh, Dr. Boykin, I, since you're first time on the show, I'd hope that maybe you'd take a second and introduce yourself to the audience, the JC Peeps, and tell us a bit about your background and what brought you to Ogden. Again, my name is Wesley Boykin. I am a, the, co, the, the education committee chair of the NAACP. I Ogden branch. I am a life member of NAACP. I've been very active in NAACP and community work throughout my career. I work as director of assessment, research, and evaluation at United Way, and I have a long history of working in educational behavioral research in school districts, universities, as well as educational and community-related organizations. I came to Ogden specifically to work um, in the community. United Way of Northern Utah, United Ways worldwide have a reputation and a long successful track record of community involvement, community engagement work. And when I learned of a position available through one of my national organizations and I communicated with a few people here. Some have become my great friends um, in the city and I just thought this was the place to be. I had been to Utah, been to Ogden a number of times before. I was very familiar with the area and I love the mountain state. And I had spent some time in Denver before, a couple of years. So I feel like I'm coming to a place that I am meant to be. Wonderful. Well, we appreciate both of you for, like I said, being willing to come on and chat about Juneteenth and kind of help the JC peeps understand what it is and how they can 
uh, learn more and be a part of the celebration here in Ogden. So I wanted to begin the conversation with just that kind of maybe a brief history lesson on what Juneteenth is, how it came to be, and uh, and we can we can go from there. Uh, anybody willing to give that brief overview? If not, I'm, I'm willing. Yes, I am going to tell you all about it and everything that I know, right? You want to hear from me? Yes, ma'am. Please. <laughs> <laughs> so are you going to? No, I don't think, I think this was. Oh, joking. you were just kidding? Oh, <laughs> it was a total joke. Okay. <laughs> yeah, please, uh, Ms. Okay, Betty or Dr. Boykin, okay. please. Uh, Juneteenth uh, is that day in 1918, 18, <laughs> uh, as you all know, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in, I think it was February of 1863, and supposed to have ended slavery in the United States. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Uh, folk try to hold on to that free labor a little longer. And uh, in Galveston, Texas, General Gordon Granger rode in his army uh, dispatch and found that blacks were still enslaved there and uh, reissued an order similar to the Emancipation Proclamation, letting uh, those enslaved individuals know that they were free. Uh, as you would imagine, a big celebration broke out and they called that first day Jubilee, kind of coincide with the biblical reference of masters having to release, release their slaves or anybody that was owed a debt every 50 years. So they called it the year of Jubilee. This happened on June the 19th. And so from Jubilee Day to June 19th to now what we call Juneteenth Day is just kind of a brief summary of that history. Yes, ma'am. And then commemoration of all that, since it really all started in Texas, because they were the very, very last place to free the slaves in this country, uh, on June, January 1st in 1980, Texas actually made it a state holiday. Oh. It's an official state holiday, not, not an observance, but it occurred on January 1st, 1980. And the first wow. state to do so. Yeah, thing. Texas being progressive there. I think that was the last time in 1980. <laughs> yeah, um, hard to call it progressive in 1980. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so one thing I also wanted to note there is that um, from my reading, I found that uh, 47 of the 50 states have some sort of observance of Juneteenth, whether that is a sort of a, like you said, Dr. Boykin, as an official state holiday, the way that Texas has, or others have noted it on their calendar elsewhere i don't it seems like such maybe an odd thing whether it, why you would just not make it a state holiday or just mark it i don't know but they're in some form for 47 they states what they call it in many of them yeah so 47 states have either observed or made a state holiday out of juneteenth which is june 19th who are the and three then, holdouts i don't want to ask <laughs> We should call them out. I think it's Arizona and the Dakotas that we're waiting on. The Dakotas. Right, okay. And it is a state, uh, a recognized observance in D.C., uh, Washington, D.C. as well. But I mean, I'll admit, this does not get much play. I've seen, I mean, I've, I've been to the Juneteenth Festival a couple of times, but I had no idea what it was. If not for your festival, I really still would not know what it was. 
Yeah. So I mean, fairly, even though we've been doing it for over 30 years in Utah, it is not that well known uh, for sure. Um, I also noted uh, in my reading, I found that uh, there's also a push to make it a national holiday. Yes, which... As a matter of fact, I reached out to some of my uh, college students today to tell them to write a letter to our congressional leaders to ask them to sign on to uh, the bill. There's already a bill out uh, to make it a national holiday. Easy thing to get behind. For yeah, sure. there's your call to action right there. There's yeah. your, you want nice. something to do. There you go. Yeah, many, many. Forward that link to you in the QR code. Yes, ma'am. That's something we can do. And we can post those to social media and encourage other folks to reach out to their congressional representatives and encourage them to vote to make Juneteenth yep. a national holiday. Uh, well, I, I appreciate the sort of setting the table for us, Miss Betty, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about. After Juneteenth, after June 19th, 1865, what changes for those folks who were newly free men and women in the United States? Because we still, like we said in the pre, uh, in the, sort of the pre-show, there's still a long road to travel and there's still one yet, even as we sit here in 2020. So can you describe a little bit about what, what changed markedly from the previous day, June 18th, 1865, for those, some of those folks? Unfortunately, not enough. You know, not right. a lot. You um, mean you are you asking what changed on that day, <laughs> this day, the next week? Yeah, yeah. I want to know what what is life like going forward after Juneteenth, because we we have we well, have a lot more history. In, to so talk he about. comes in and he frees those that have not been freed, right? He right. basically says, and, "Texas, you got to stop." Yeah. yeah, and then and yeah. then they're free. What what happens after that? Yeah, like, do they have a house? Do they, they have, have nowhere to go, <laughs> nothing to do? They have the clothes on their back, and uh, most of them ended up still staying and working in those same on those same plantations for years to come. Right, because what else are they? What, did they start getting a wage at that point? Like maybe a meager one, but anything? <laughs> no, you have to go back in time. Uh, and and in the midst of everything we're experiencing right now, with alleged equality, equal protections, equal freedoms. Given where we are right now, now I want you to go back. Just go back 150 or so years and go put yourself in the mindset at that time. A civil war had to take place for equal protections, equal freedoms that we really don't have right now. Let me fast forward again. I'm just... Go all the way back, rewind. Imagine having been locked up for 400 years. That's now your culture. You learn how to eat foods, cook foods that were thrown away. You learn how to take care of yourself in two, three-hour periods every day for 400 years, seven days a week. You never learned, you, it was, you could be killed if you found out you were learning to read or if they found out someone else taught with teaching someone to read. Now go back and picture yourself. Imagine, now all of a sudden you're free. You can't read. You don't know where you're from. 400 years passed. You don't know anybody else. If somebody ran away, you don't know if they got away. 
You were taken away at birth sometimes or a child for your mother. You don't know where they are. So think about that. And you're free. What do you imagine they might have? What you imagine probably would be no more than what we imagine about what happened. But I do know that logically and how people are set forth in their daily lives, trying to recall their daily lives a few weeks ago, and we see the spike of COVID. But they had a clue as to what to do. Imagine you had no clue, and they opened up, moved everything to yellow, and you had no clue for 400 years what yellow meant and what to do when you step outside your home. We know, and we got an increase in COVID rates all over this country. They had no clue. They didn't, they couldn't drive to the beach. They couldn't drive to the mountain. They had no cabin. They had no horses. They had nothing. So the idea that some would stay put, and they didn't know what was beyond the gate. Uh-huh. Well, and I have to guess they they must have started building their own communities, would be my guess, as they start sort the of getting together. Was the first day of some acknowledgement of a community, but remember, they have 14 years of surviving with themselves. Now, community takes on a different definition. Before you were forced away, I don't want to get too close to this baby I'm having because it might be taken. I don't want to get too close to my wife that I had to create my own wedding ceremony because the master can come and do whatever they want. We already got various colors, so we know where they're coming from. Those realizations were difficult. I was going to say it would be hard to believe, you know, especially you see the Emancipation Proclamation (gasps) and you're still in bondage. And so I can imagine when Granger comes in and says, no, we got to do this, you'd still, as a person, still feel captive. It's not like you're, it's done, we get to go, because it's like you already had that pulled on you. They already told you you were free once before and you weren't. And then another person comes, no, 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 you're really free. I can't see people believing that after 400 years of enslavement. What does freedom really mean? Yeah. And remember, the ones that were freed on Sistified uh, didn't know they were free. It took that long for the news to get to them. Yeah. They didn't know that set didn't know they were free. No one, the, the, the plantation owners chose not to tell them. Right. What about like, um, I don't know, like a, like kind of a Stockholm syndrome, right? It, what, um, that kind of mentality, like, um, all master's taking care of me. Yeah. They, they're already taking care of me and, and I don't, uh, too, too, uh, too much to go out and be free. Does that make sense? Like. And and not so much that they were taken care of because they were doing the labor. Right, they were right, taking right, care right. of the plantation owner. But being able to know what their limits were, how far they could go, what they could do. And in the subsequent, I would say, years, they were giving small plots of land that uh, kind of indentured servitude uh, process. Sharecroppers. Yeah, they could work oh, and right. give part of it back or they could keep a part but they were still uh, tied to that plantation owner, even at that time. And so it took 
a number of years for them to really build uh, sustainable places, families, and eventually community. And remember, during that period, Reconstruction, the Blacks, the former slaves, the former enslaved people outnumbered the white plantation owners and so forth. So there was a period in there where there were elected officials. Yes. Former enslaved people. And then we couldn't have that. We as Americans couldn't have that. So the birth of undercover organizations developed. Uh, All sorts of undercover organizations came about to keep people in their place, even under the guise of freedom. It well, just happened. They were part of a systemic approach to keep things the way they were, and the power brokers in charge. I think that's something that maybe, especially white people, don't realize about that time. I just learned it today doing reading that I, I think it was in the southern region. Black people were 45, 46% of the population versus white people were about 53%. So, I I mean, to try to imagine what that environment was like, obviously, uh, I think you can imagine that that the white people there were feeling afraid and probably were trying to come up with ways to make sure that uh, they could maintain some kind of control. Control, and they immediately felt the impact of their wealth being challenged because, you know, the whole industry of forced labor built the wealth of this country. And so if you don't have that wealth anymore, where are you going to get it from? And they tried to get it from other peoples and other places, but it just wasn't the same as the kind of production and commitment. I won't say commitment, but the kind of production and and level of production consistent that came with those Africans that were enslaved. Yeah, and I think that this is why you see the transition then to like what you talked about, Miss Betty, and you, Dr. Boykin, about the transition to sharecropping as a means of continuing to find a labor source to work the land, yes. but in a way that maybe is less profitable, but is it still retains some semblances of the system that came before it, yes, even it though there it was were- legal. It was as implemented in many of the southern states. It was legal slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it was. Sharecropping did not happen because you got a skill set. I got. I can finance your farm. Let's work happily, calligraphy together. No, no. It was no different than a whip. Because the amount of money they were paid, the uh, remember all of the money was given up front, and the labor every summer, nothing off those loans. So they were still beholden to the slave owner, and those debts got so far. And when you attempted to leave that situation, when relationships started moving to the north or in that straight line, straight line migration pattern, if you were in South 
the Southwest, your straight line pattern was to California. If you in the Southeast, your straight line migration pattern was to the North, New York, Philly, D.C. And if you were in the Central, you went straight up to in the Liberia, uh, Chicago, Milwaukee, Detroit, because those were the jobs. But if they were to track you down, legally they had holes on you, and you had, they had holes on the people that you left behind. Because they no one could afford to take it where they were some. Most could not afford to take the entire clan with them, and most wouldn't dare leave the majority behind because they knew how they were suffering. In a lot of ways, it's like um, a new form of immigration, right? You're moving from one country to another, you know, the south to the north. But when the great migration, straight line migration pattern started, there were relationships already there. Those that went before them, those escaped from slavery that now were able to reach back and communicate. Remember, if you escaped from slavery, other than the underground methods, you hadn't you sent a letter. Certainly, there were no electronic communication. The only way was a letter. And you certainly won't write a letter with the master's cousin at the post office. Yeah, The introduction of the Industrial Revolution that kind of followed Reconstruction, did yes. that change the ability to leave the plantation behind in that you could now move to a city exactly. and have an opportunity to not work the fields Sorry, my family has to come in and out over and over while I'm doing this. Um, but to, to give them an opportunity to leave the fields and go work in a factory, go work someplace else so they weren't still tied to that essential still enslavement. Along with uh, the factories, many of them ended up being uh, working on the railroad. And we just had that 150th anniversary of Golden Spike. And we hear a lot about the Chinese workers, but they were that whole southern part and the eastern part of the railroad was primarily black uh, workers at that particular time. So a lot of them got to not only work, but see other parts of the country and then spread out even more and build family and community. And during this period, you saw the proliferation, the proliferation of uh, historically black colleges and universities. The very first one, Lincoln University and Cheney, and, uh, and Cheney State University in Pennsylvania and crossover to Missouri, they, uh, and then the others started coming out. Now, a lot of the benefactors that started some of these were white people, well-intentioned, good white people that wanted to see education because they recognized that that's crucial. Remember, the majority of the slaves could not, former enslaved people could not read. But by just before the Industrial Revolution, you began to see the proliferation of some of these institutions because there was no other place for them to go to get higher education, which they had the substandard public schools, separate and equal public schools, uh, to train them to get into these. But even at the beginning, the majority of those institutions were focused on trades and careers agriculture, home economics, and like that. Out of that movement, in between Reconstruction and Revolution, the uh, Industrial Revolution, you begin to see people in cities like Madam, help me out, Betty, C.J. Walker, 
the movie is out now. You guys might want to look at that. Of course, it's Hollywood influence on the story, but she does have living relatives now and pretty vouch for the story. So you see the the beginning of the first black female millionaire in America, just like doing here. And that's a whole nother story for you guys. Black here in the concept of a crown. I watched it. I watched it yeah. after they had um, the interview with uh, Octavia. Yes. And go. And made her <laughs> own her own product. She was the first to kind of make a product and sell it. It yeah, it was great show if you check it out. Right. And so you had you had signs you were in the right place. But just signs of it. And and um at the early turn of the 19th century, you had the introduction of the concept of standardized testing, IQ testing. So as, as you began to get educated, as you began to make money, another system in the past. And we all know the history of the IQ test. It wasn't to, you know, to determine general intelligence. It was to determine who was going to be on the front lines of World War II or World War I. The history of the IQ intelligence testing in America, which we use to determine and justify who would be on the front lines. I didn't know that. Uh, what? Yeah, I, that's news to me. What? <laughs> the history of the intelligence testing in America. Google it. I did a, a paper on that. It was placed in the Ohio Historical Society back whenever I was a, a doctoral student. For those that believe in the, the system, the systemic racism that was set up, they're not going to allow a certain group of people to move forward. There's a new way to keep pushing back, pushing back. I can't see from 18... It's a way to keep the house. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was equal. It wasn't just the hate and disdain for another group. It was also grabbing on and keeping on to the money. So it was economic. Slavery was a, a business. Economic. Of the people, You know, this has been uh, this has been a point that I've been making on Twitter the past couple of days because a lot of uh, you know we're all we're all Democrats on the show, and uh, a lot of people will say, well, you know, the Democratic Party is the party of slavery, and so you know the Republican Party is the party of Lincoln, and they're trying to own this abolitionist <laughs> legacy. But what I like to point out is that it's not. It's well. It's not a. It's not a conservative movement. It's like you mean to tell me that there are a group of people from the north who want to fundamentally change the economy in this country, and they consider themselves conservatives. You're crazy. I'm, I'm sure you guys are aware of the political parties and the turn that happened in this country, right? Yes, sir. Even though the name of Lincoln's party was called Republican. And at the end of slavery, all the blacks were Republican. And after the Reconstruction, the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Revolution that you talk about, you mentioned, and freedoms, liberations, education for the former enslaved people, then the and then remember the the, the number of people in the South that undercover groups that started coming up in the middle of the night that I don't want to justify by mentioning the name of them because they still exist today. 
All that drove the parties to switch. This party is too much for us. They're going to ruin it for us. So the party switched, guys. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I mean, like the have no knowledge of that history. It wasn't like the Republicans at the, of Lincoln are the same Republicans. The Republicans of Lincoln are the Democrats of today. Sir. The Republicans now used to be the Democratic Party. They switched because of too many former enslaved people in one party, the rises of the Ku Klux Klan in that group. Oh, I said I wasn't going to sing it. But <laughs> started, they, they literally switched in this country. And you can, I know the millennials love to Google. You can Google that. Yep. It wasn't the Southern strategy, right? Yeah. Well, so a couple, couple. I don't. I will assume it's Southern because that was the biggest threat. They were the one that had the best, in, most interest in keeping people down. Because remember, slavery was free labor, free. And so, so, so yes, it was a Southern strategy. But, but don't get it wrong. Um, no, no, and a couple of things that I wanted to point it out. Yeah, it's uh, so one, one thing a to lot note. Of we celebrate now were, 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 were uh, part and parcel with the KKK. Yes, sir. So since 1964, um, the Democratic Party has not captured a plurality of the white vote. So take that for what you will. And uh, currently today, the Republican Party enjoys an 8% approval rating among African Americans. That's today. So, yeah, 8%. So Can, I, I just want to I, I have a quick question and it might not be quick, but you had mentioned that there were undercover agencies and there were, there were agencies that were established um, after this time period, uh, like during Reconstruction. Um, can you elaborate on that? Like what, what were those? Do you know what those agencies were? Yeah, the KKK. Yeah. Types of orders, those types of organization. Remember, they were, when you think of in the, under the cloak, cover a cloak in the middle of the night, whatever you conjure up is probably true. But they were the ones that we, is, is one of the biggest, long-lasting organizations, but they weren't the only one. So, the, uh, yeah, okay, so I thought you were talking like federal agencies or something, like the police departments or something like that. That's what I thought. Oh. No. Now, can you really that? They they come on later to begin yeah, to but can have discriminatory laws and practices to keep uh, blacks down. You know, uh, from every part of our economy and public sector, from education to housing to uh, employment to everything that existed to bring about life and and. We countered that by building communities ourselves. You look at Tulsa, you look at Black Wall Street, you look at some of those other places where we didn't have anywhere to go to buy goods and services. So we built our own communities and bought and sold from each other and had Black millionaires like this C.J. Walker, Madam C.J. Walker, but others. Uh, The insurance industry, we set up our own banks, Freedman Banks, all of those things to support ourselves and to provide a better life for us because the systems were so uh, entrenched against us for, you know, we went from 
like you said, industrial to all of the Jim Crow laws that swept across the entire country to have separate but unequal. And so it made us again rise to the the strengths that we had as a people, the resilience to say we're not going to be defeated, we'll find another way. And our other way was building our own industries and building our own communities and helping to take care of ourselves during this particular time. Well, and yes. I think those are stories that don't really get told in the white community. Like I did not know about Tulsa until I learned about the white people going and bombing Tulsa. But like there, there are, I think a lot of these stories of, of hope and of the black community building these amazing things during that time that, that I don't even know about. Yeah. Greenwood. Yeah. There were so many towns like that. We hear about the larger ones, but just jealousy that mm-hmm. we did everything we could to keep you down and you're still rising, you know, we, we can't have that. What's going on here? And so, I, um, I grew up in North Carolina. I just learned about the Wilmington riots last year. And well, I was conversing with some of my high school history teachers. They taught it. These are teachers that are long retired that called me to this day and talked with me. And I want to, you, why didn't you teach us these things? And I grew up not far from Wilmington. Most of you probably know the name Michael Jordan. Sure do. A few miles from where I was, but grew up in Wilmington. And Wilmington is now a beautiful seaport city. But that history and, and friends of mine who grew up there were never taught it. So when you say you didn't know these things, remember, you grew up in the same system we did. So this is what we're referring to when we say institutions. And I asked, responded to Daniel, can you really separate it? Now, did they have governors back then? Did they have mayors back then? Did they have DAs? Did they have ministers and pastors? Of course, you know the answer is yes. Now, you're telling me they didn't know to prosecute? Many, many of them were in the in that undercloak, undercover. Yeah, editor of the newspaper. They had newspaper back then. Remember, that was, most people didn't have telephones. They certainly didn't have internet. So newspaper and books was everything. I think a microcosm of this conversation is, um, so I'm a huge fan of baseball. And if you watch Ken Burns' documentary that he made in the 1980s, in the, well, it's in the, from the early 90s, about baseball, <laughs> uh, as baseball, Major League Baseball develops, because blacks aren't allowed to play the game with yeah. white people they create the negro leagues and yeah. the negro leagues like like miss betty talked about like they, they basically built their own and uh they built their own they had their own all-star game they had their own franchises and they were successful and what brings the negro leagues down is not the quality of baseball because it was good it was it was jackie robinson actually because there was an integration they finally started allowing people of color to play the game after 1947 and because of that all the good players like satchel page uh, unfortunately, you know, people like Josh Gibson passed away before they had an opportunity to play the game, but they start to go to the major leagues now and it effectively kills the business model of the Negro leagues, but they built their own because like Miss Betty said, they're being kept down and we're not allowed to play the game with everyone else. And those games, the stands were full. The stands were full. They were full. They were. 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 They
Remember, most of the scholars that we all know from those the other centuries came from historically black institutions. The Oregon was, State University, Baltimore. <laughs> you just go down the name, Jaho Franklin. They didn't just exist out of thin air with that thought. Very good. That we, the, all systems were created and they were separate. Uh, colleges, public schools, um, churches, everything. Right here in, and it wasn't just um, the, the, the desire to create separate. It was, there was no other choice. Survival. Survival. Baptist churches, black and white. Uh, Catholic, black and white. But there were some religions that were more open than some others. And, and I have to give credit to the Catholic Lutheran, but not in great numbers because a lot of minorities were not flocking to those religions. But when they moved to the cities, the Catholic Church had open arms, more so than any other denomination. Much, much more uh, than any other. So you will find a lot more Black Catholics than, say, Lutheran. The Methodist was very open. I think it's a, a good time in the conversation to kind of transition into uh, the 1960s in the United States. Um, uh, 1964, we see the Civil Rights Act passed. 1965, we see the Voting Rights Act passed. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, okay. okay, so Tulsa, right? Uh, the, the bombings okay. and everything that happened, right? Mm-hmm. What happened after that? Because why, why is that? Uh, I didn't know about that until I watched a TV show. The Watchmen on HBO, like that. I was like, that didn't really happen, and and yeah, sure enough, it like we bombed our own like, Americans. Uh, like blew my mind. I just was, but what happened after that? What what kind of uh, uh, reforms was there? Uh, riots? Like what? Like protests? Like what? What? What happened? Daniel, the same thing happened as it happens with these families when the police killed their children. They move on. They're really a resilient group of people, and we're fighting a country where we are the minority. What else can we do? All commit suicide from stress? We move on. I have very, very good friends. I've been to the remnants of Black Wall Street in Tulsa. I have very good friends of fraternity brothers who live in Tulsa right now, and they can tell you, my grandfather was one of those. We used to own this on this street. And it's not the street that it was then. And and the whole park is there. They move on, man. And and one of the one of the other things, and I'm glad you said that about not believing it, because I think that's one of the reasons why we're still where we are today, because there are a lot of people who just don't believe this is a part of American history. We had to make it out. There's no human that would treat somebody else like that. But through all of that, even with Tulsa, not only did they bomb, they hung people and left them up in the streets for weeks and days to terrorize everybody else. So what are you going to do? You're going to disperse, grab what you can and move someplace else and try to start over again. And that was an ongoing legacy uh, post-slavery Jim Crowism was a season of terror. If we can't get you one way, we're going to freak you out the other way. My my grandparents and parents are from North Carolina as well, Northeastern 
Elizabeth City, Camden area. I know it well. At <laughs> <laughs> so Elizabeth City State University. But uh, we would go and spend summers with my grandfather. He was a farmer and worked as a longshoreman in Norfolk at the naval base. And so we found where he had guns, shotguns and shells, and he's the staunch Christian. And we're young folks, we try to figure out what's going on. And so finally, uh, he told us some of the stories about how they had to take turns staying up all night, watching and guarding their families and other communities. Okay, these were church deacons that were doing this work to protect their families because those in the hoods and others would come out to actually destroy and to kill, to hang, to maim. And so it, it, this is real and this is, this is not long ago. This is not long ago, guys. Uh, I was one of 10 students that integrated my local high school and they in Maryland. They were not going to integrate Brown B. Board of Education, 54. My school didn't integrate until 66. And by government mandate, decrees, orders, they, we're not going to do this. So it, it wasn't that long ago. So this I, whole... Six years of my education were in all black schools. The last six was, was integrated schools. Mandated as a result of the federal court order, and they didn't do it until they had to do it. And in North Carolina, first six years, seventh grade, we were all together. It's just like Juneteenth. It's like ah, the news will get to them eventually. Eventually, but as long as we can keep that free labor rolling, we good with it. (laughs) So when they tell, so when they, when people say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all that garbage. Like, does that just infuriate you so much? I mean, I can't imagine how infuriating that's got to be because it's like right. we ha- we did that and you fuckers <laughs> blew oh, us up for it. Went. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's you notice you see this you see the screen, right? Who got the biggest smiles, Betty and me? <laughs> And Betty and I both were in a Zoom bomb diversity commission meeting. Uh-huh. And I had to talk to my colleagues. They were more distressed than we were. I said, we, we got a history of this. Unfortunately, <laughs> nothing new. And you thought that it should have been reversed. But God's resilience is real and it's needed. And, and, and all you have to do is to talk if you have Jewish friends. If you have friends that have been downtrodden, the first step is get to know who they are. Get to know their story and understand why they are. And if you think that I'm not experiencing unequal treatment to this day, and I don't think I've ever worked in an environment, maybe one, where people had more credentials than I, even at the age of 25 and 26. And and you still have to prove yourself every day that somebody didn't donate that PhD to you. You didn't print it off the computer. (laughs) I spent a lot of time printing because I know what the game is. And and you guys know, not in Utah, it's a religious state, you would be surprised what people who you never speak to have to go through every day. 
and 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 keep my chin up. They have nobody to tell. Well, and I think when we said that wasn't that long ago, I think so many of us um, in Utah, we do think that it was a long time ago. Slavery ended a long time ago. We forget about the civil rights movement was just in the 1960s. And even then it didn't solve and get everybody. So that's the fight right now. I feel with my friends is that no, this, that happened 400 years ago, you know, and, and built, but we're still fighting the same fight. It's oh, not yeah, that long ago. Get over it. They're saying get over let, it. Let me tell you about how time will play tricks on your mind. In 1991, for the first time, I went to South Africa. My ex is from, from Cape Town. And whenever I was supposed to have gone there the first time, right after, not long after we first met, I had to be accepted as an honorary white to get a visa. Of course, I rebelled. And no, you have to come here to America. And I first went there, it was the year that Nelson Mandela was let out of prison. The election and official apartheid was over the next year. And I went to places for the first time, and I would say, this is the most beautiful place I've ever been in. That's going to be all the time? Wrestling. We've never been before. We couldn't go. We'd be killed if we went to these places. And then we started having serious conversations. I met a gentleman that had been on Robin Islands with Nelson Mandela for years. I met other people like that. And they were telling me, uh, and I would say, well, why didn't you guys just do some of the things we were doing in the sisters? They said, Wesley, we didn't have TV. Those of us, they had a TV tax that was so high that nobody could afford it. And maybe the minister and everybody would watch. So we didn't know what was going on in America. And then I just couldn't fathom them not knowing. And then they, they caught me. And it basically, it was a verbal slap in the face that shook, woke me up. Basically, it's 91. You're talking about 60s and the 70s in the United States. You haven't been free that long. <laughs> I go, who am I? About apartheid, when I do remember, and I had to say that to them, and of course, by that time, my aunts and her sisters have been visiting me. I had to say to them, I remember the color only, white only sign. Definitely. And so I understand if your teachers didn't teach you, they didn't teach me, because time will make you what? to forget. And the, the danger of forgetting is that your neighbor next door might not know. The people in the plantation next door might not even know they're free because the communication, the lack of TV and apartheid. It was a well-executed uh, form of slavery in modern day. In modern day. Remember, it wasn't officially over in, in, um, in, uh, until 92. I mean, we think about world, we think about people, we think about resiliency. It changes things. And once you know, once you know, you can never close Pandora's box. So one of, one of the things I recently watched, a, there's a short Netflix series. Uh, it talks about Malcolm X. And it talks about his assassination. But as a part of that, they, they spend a lot of time talking about his life a lot of his speeches, the things that he talked about. And I find it interesting that um, a lot of folks 
they want to lionize, you know, the, the, the founders of the United States and talk about what, what great folks they were, you know, they just wanted to fight for their freedoms and, you know, they were willing to, to do things and, you know, throw tea into whatever and, and shoot some guns. And uh, I, I look at, you know, some of the comparisons that Malcolm X makes and, and the way that he motivates the community in some of his famous words by any means necessary, right? You know, he's out there telling folks, he's basically taking the mantle of the American revolution and bringing it to African-American community, especially to black Muslims in the sixties. And he's being, and he's being vilified for it. Like, how dare he, how dare he? Yeah. He was demonized for it. He's, he's so mean. He's, you know, and it's just like, he is saying the words that the founders said in 1776, but he's saying it for black people. And so because of that, he was vilified. Yeah. But, but take that analogy. The country used the same, he's using the same practice and tactics, revolution. This country is founded on revolution. And we don't have to just think about the American Revolution. We can think about Mexico. We can think about the Native Americans. We can think about everything we gain. Now also think about the recent days, somewhere mimicking the practice and behaviors of Adolf Hitler. Holding the Bible upside down. I'm sure you guys have seen the photos. Yeah, seen photos. There's a large part of this population, especially the state that we live, and applaud that coming back into history. One of the worst. I, I, I don't know how the rank human catastrophe has been one being worse than the other. Only thing I can say is that there are some that endure over time, hundreds of years, and shorter period, but all horrific. One of the most horrific events in world history, and the leader of it, you mimic it, and a large percentage of our population, even in our state, applauded. But even with what we know now, they were still vilified. Malcolm X. And, and a part of that is... We consider it was good, but Adolf Hitler did not do something that anybody would consider good. So, and, I think... You had mentioned earlier about yes. reconciliation. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, that whole notion of reconciliation, when you cannot admit that you were wrong, if you cannot admit that you did these things, Okay, you continue to build systems to support this untrue narrative that you've established and perpetuated. You know, I just watched the follow up to uh, what's the show they showed in the White House, Roosevelt. That brought back the influx of the Klan, the resurgence of the Klan. Somebody help me with the movie. So, so uh, it's a film. It's a film about Roosevelt. I know what no. you did last summer. I watched that last night too. <laughs> no, this, not that. Not quite. I don't watch scary movies. <laughs> who's in it? Who, who's in the movie? Uh, no, uh, the one that it was the turn of the century movie that they showed in the White House. The president showed, and the birth of a nation. Birth of a nation. Yeah, even. Uh, when I looked at that and listened to the propaganda around that and the fights around that and how that marked the resurgence of the Klan and it took place at the Oval Office, you know, in, in the president's resident, giving legal sanction to perpetuate these negative narratives 
the us versus them, and all to keep power to me, power, privilege, and again, resist the notion of seeking forgiveness, you know, the, a basic human concept, a spiritual concept. In order to move forward, you have to admit that you did something wrong and ask for forgiveness and then seek that healing and reconciliation. And we talk about it, but we really haven't come full circle uh, to grips with this legacy of enslavement, Jim Crowism, uh, de facto discrimination, the uh, prison industrial complex, you know, segregated schools, redlining, you know, the list goes on and on and on as if we made this stuff up. A GI could go fight in World War II and get hung in his uniform when he gets back to the United States. That was real. That, that, that's not made up. It's in, it's in the books, you know. We know these things happen, but for whatever reason, people don't want to still believe it. They're like, we should be over it by now. And, and you can't be over something that you're still living every day. And if I it think, ended, yeah, go ahead. Exactly. I mean, we continue to fund those institutions that have systemic racism that, you know, still hold that. It's still the same foundation of when people were being lynched in their uniform or it's still the same thing. We're still funding those same institutions. And that to me is where the reconciliation comes in when people say, well, we didn't do it. I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. No. And by continuing to fund police departments that have um, excessive force and killing people of color, no, we are contributing and we've all and we benefited. White America have benefited and continue to benefit from the byproducts of our labor and these systems that perpetuated it. You know, Georgetown right now and other colleges and universities across the country are now having to come to grips, finding out that oh, the, those headstones out there were the slaves, and, and we supported this industry and it built our buildings on these campuses and supported them for years. Okay, it's real. Well, and I think what happens is we we teach people that slavery is a blemish on our country, and then we teach them that we fought a war and we fixed it. And we don't talk about what happened after that. And people need to come to terms with the yes, fact that John, we never yeah. fully rectified it. Yeah. It has never been rectified, but we've whitewashed it. So most people have the convenience of being able to not understand the timeline from the end of slavery until now. So they can say we've rectified it and just sweep it under the rug. And so it's got to be so frustrating that your job ends up being the answer to every question. Like, why don't you just pull yourself up from your bootstraps? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a five hour history lesson. Oh yeah. And even, you know, the mm -hmm. fact that we don't work harder, we just work harder. We're the hardest working people in show business. I don't know nobody. <laughs> You know, we are we keep three or four jobs. It's not one. We keep three or four jobs all the time. So everybody got a side hustle. And who would go all the way across those waters and pick out some shippers and lazy people to come and bring them and build a country? That doesn't even make common sense. So those narratives, we have to shoot those apart every day. You know, they tried to enslave natives. It didn't work. They didn't work the way that we were. They weren't as strong as we were. They tried to do it with the Irish. They didn't work the same way. They weren't as strong as we were. They kept us there because we produced the wealth and made them all wealthy from the South to the North. 
east to the west. And I'm ready for my reparations. There, there is a... Just saying, you know, I... Let, let, let me first just say that working hard has never been an issue in my life because I was raised, you got to work as hard. So that's always in. You, you don't go to college to get a degree. You got to get some doctorate or your lawyer. That was just it. So that whenever you do apply, nobody would be more qualified. That was just, that was my mindset. Literally, that was my mindset. And that was taught. So it wasn't like I was ever going to be in a situation that, that somebody worked harder, spent more time at the office, or had more degree. That, that, I planned all that. So that's not an issue for me. But you still run into roadblocks as if that didn't happen. So then the narrative would change. And the narrative would be, well, and my, and my response to any kind of change narrative is, well, if you tell me what it is, and it's the same as what you got, what you were told, I'm going to excel, and there's not going to be any. But then the narrative is like a moving target. You know, you come in, it's move somewhere else. So you have to navigate that. But that's just life for me. I, I don't worry about all that. But 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 I I but but I do worry for other people who yeah. not held the world with all of the background that I do, or the tools, and if they are coming in equal, they should be getting equal treatment. And, and a lot of our younger people the playing field has to be the same, that. and that's where we are with a lot of things in our world right now. And and John, you talk about the bootstraps. I actually don't mind that as long as they're the same men. And the same kind of shoes. You bring the same pair of shoes with the same neck, the bootstrap, I'm going to win. But but that's what I worry about. Not not any type of narrative to say, oh, pull yourself up. No, give me the same pair of shoes, give me the same boots, same brand. So then would you say that affirmative action takes away from your accolades and your work? No. Affirmative action was something that was brought up because it was laws that somebody else had the majority to vote in, that positions, leaders that somebody else voted in because they had the voting right, laws, but those same somebodies didn't go and put in the enforcers, so the laws would never be enforced. So affirmative action became a slap in the face of stupidity of law. A system, a flawed, flawed system that some will argue was deliberate because you can't have all of these control of all of these officers at the federal level, control of all of these officers at the state level, and control of the enforcers and the institutions where we put you. If we don't enforce, you don't enforce it, you can't have that level of control. So, by the grace of somebody's goodness, they voted, again, the majority still was the majority at the time, and they voted in affirmative action. They voted in the um, these laws that came into play during uh, President Johnson's War on Poverty, 1963 to 1964, which ESEA, you guys might know it as Title I, uh, the Peace Corps, a lot of other institutions came in to fight the war on poverty. That wasn't something to pacify. That was first acknowledging that I don't give you the same kind of boots and I don't give you the same 
meant for the bootstraps. And, and if I may, uh, the whole narrative around affirmative action is flawed. You know, for some reason, people began to believe that an unqualified person was getting a leg up. No, we were always had the qualifications. We never would be considered without being overly qualified in the first place. So affirmative action just opened the door and said, I will consider you. You didn't get it. When I first came to Utah, that's where people said, how did you get your degree? I said, the same way you did. I guess I went to class. I did the work. They assumed the only way I got in was because somebody, no, I had to take interest exams. I had to pass the tests and do the papers and, and all of that, but still got denied and paid less and scrutinized on things that weren't a part of the job description just to get in and a part of our work ethic. And like uh, Wesley was saying, the things that he was taught, we were all taught that we had to either work two times or 10 times harder than our white counterpart to get half as far. That's just the way you grew up. I'm telling you guys, yeah, that's that, that was no flag. That wasn't even a part of our DNA to just be average, to just get by. You know, you see me today, I'm doing a gazillion things. I try to stop, but that's what I grew up on. You did all of that and more because that was required of us to get half the recognition, half the opportunity as our white counterparts. And it's, it's still wrong. And our emerging leaders and people younger than myself, they're not willing to pay that price. They're like, wait a minute, did my grandfather and my grandmother and my parents pay that already? Why am I have to pay that same price today? And that's why with the uprisings that we see, it's not just about another black man or woman getting killed, okay, needlessly. It's about 400 years of oppression. 400 years of being denied, 400 years of seeing unequal and systematic racism and being a part of it. You know, we understand why freeways went through our communities. We understand why they made high rise and, and these apartment complexes with a thousand people in it. These things were engineered systematically out of someone's mind to keep us in a certain place at a certain station in life so that now we have a wealth gap, okay, that we'll never catch up the way we're going. I don't care how many jobs you have. So something has to change. And that's a huge in Utah right now. I, I look at uh, where we're going to put some highways, where we're going to put a prison. And we have Senator Hollins trying to fight and get her people recognized and her community recognized is you want to just put all the stuff in our backyard. Mm -hmm. to separate yes. that half and half knots. It is the most infuriating thing to watch. Have you seen the documentary The 13th? About half. I just started it today. I okay, that, and when that. you see these types of movies, don't start it until you know you got enough time to finish it. Beginning to end. It's mm -hmm. one of those series, I don't watch you tonight tomorrow. When you see these types of films, watch it. Make sure you the time to watch it from beginning to end in one sitting. But remember, the we talked about under the cloak of darkness, other institutions, and I initially, Daniel, I was referring to KKK, but the concept of prison didn't just come up and be filled overnight. Remember, in the 
the reconstructions between there and the, and Reve, the Industrial Revolution, prisons began to permit. And of course, you know who was Daniel. And, and, and Daniel, I don't know this, but by the spelling of your last name, I assume you may be Latinx. But you were the Pilgrims in there, Native Americans to a lesser degree. But what happened during that period of, in, of people in prison? Do you guys remember? You remember any of the sounds of the people working on the... The chain gangs? Chain gangs. I watched those in North Carolina. Because it didn't need it Many of them were building it. It was what again? Free slave labor. labor. It was legalized slavery. These are not opinion. Do the reading, do the facts yourself. As one institution died, the enforcers on the that, that couldn't be covered by law came up under the cover of night. Legalized these other institutions. And now as more and more people are being more aware of who's in the prisons today, what do we have now going on in America? That stock market increases every year. Privatization of prisons. And I don't care how you guys might want to re-justify it. I say re-justify deliberately. Those are the facts. People are making money. And and if those best people are not filled, those rooms are not filled, they don't get paid. And what happens to the stock prices? They plummet. And so what, and and I said earlier to respond to a question, it's, it's all connected. You've seen the rogue judges who sentence all the teenage children, and unfortunately, in this case, for the for the reform institution that are for profit, they send white children there too. But but for the adults, it's mostly blacks and, and brown. But, but so somebody got to keep the storm. But now, if you really think it's coincident, then that's why programs like this. And movies like the 13th and others are so needed. And that's why I say, don't watch it in this. Really, really, I tell black people this too. I tell my Latino friends. And if you live in Utah and you're a minority, and most of your friends are minority, that mean they're Latino. (laughs) (laughs) Start, carve out your time. Make it a date. Make it a party. But make everybody shut up when you come back on. And watch it. And noted, prison, for-profit prison is no different than other forms of legalized slavery. That's what it is. That's what it is. Can I ask, though, aren't you guys just so frustrated having to re-explain this to everybody over and over again? I mean, it's a joy. It's a joy because you ask and you want to listen. It's it's frustrating because you begin to say at a certain point, um, how many people before us died with the hope that it'll get better? And even though things might look on the surface, oh, better you got a degree, Wesley, you got a degree, you been all over the world, uh, it's better. But it's more than me. It's more, Betty doesn't go home at night and say, it's all about me. So there's frustration, there's some joy in it, really, really joy to ask. When I first met Kobe, I was glad this this white boy was calling me to talk about things. <laughs> I probably used that same language with him when we first met because 
breaking down the barriers. Let's get comfortable with each other. Yeah, one of the things that one of the things that Dr. Boykin told me the first time we met was, uh, you know, I had questions for him, and his his answer was really simple. He was like, "Colby, you're here in front of me asking questions that you know the answer to. You want to know what's going on in communities of color? Show up. That's what you got to do. You want to know what you know the issues are in communities that are not yours? Show up. Hang out with people. Find out. Have conversations like Dr. Boykin's talking about, and they're going to be difficult sometimes." But you got to be willing to do the homework because it's not just going to happen. You're not just going to know, you know, these, you know, folks have to get comfortable. When I first started as a, as a, at AmeriCorps Vista, which is one of the programs that Dr. Boykin was talking about in Linda Johnson's Great Society is basically the Peace Corps for America. I was a Vista and I worked in the refugee communities in Salt Lake. And, you know, I went into that thinking, all right, especially with the Iraqi community, hey, Colby speaks Arabic, you know, he's going to walk into the Iraqi community and they're going to tell him all about everything that's going on. Nope. No, even though I spoke Arabic and I knew a lot about the Middle East, it took two, three months before the Iraqis trusted me as a person. Who, who are was genuinely you? Willing. Yeah, who are you? Exactly. Who are they, had to, you? they had to see that I was a person who was invested, a person who was actually going to try and help and who wasn't just there to, I don't know, just be around. And I earned their trust and it was great. And when I left, you know, I, I had a lot of really great friends in the Iraqi community and a lot of other refugee communities in Salt Lake, but it took time. And that was the thing that, you know, Dr. Boykin reiterated to me the first time that we met was that it takes time and you have to show up and you have to show that you're willing to do the homework. And a lot of people are willing to take the time, you know, and, 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 and that's a part of the frustration for me when some come, they want me to give them that quick answer. It's like, no, you got to invest some time to learn yourself because it doesn't become impactful if you haven't, if you haven't put anything in it you're not going to value the interaction. And so I think it's important that people are willing to be invested in learning. Uh, I think earlier doctors said that, you know, we were taught in the same schools that you were. My elementary school was segregated. So I was rooted in history and all of that with all black teachers and principals. I went to the all white school and became a radical. I was like, oh yeah, burn, baby, burn, because these folk is crazy, you know? And I'm the, I'm the youngest of six kids, so I didn't take nothing anyway. And, you know, a lot of people had to pull me aside and say, Betty, no, you can't fight every day. You can't, you know, people would even believe I would fight the way I am today because I believed in that conversation and, and building and coalition. So my mother spent a lot of time on her knees getting me to understand that we're all equal in God's sight. No one's better than the next, we're different. And if you're different, if you wanna learn something, then you find out so that we can come together and have meaningful conversation. Let, let me, if I may, if I can give you guys one other quick example of how time will play a problem with people's mindset. Are you guys familiar with Jane Elliott? No, no sir. Hey, I want you to write it down, Kobe. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> let me write it down. Jane Elliott. Now, let me ask you this. You familiar with the brown eyes, blue eyes study? Yep. Yeah. No. Jane Elliott, then. You know Jane, yeah. that was Jane Elliott. She's still alive. She's still kicking. She's still preaching. She's 86 years old. She's still speaking all over the world. Betty, I would love to see Jane Elliott and Angela Davis at the U. Lycia next year. Okay. together. They recently last, before the outbreak, last fall sometime together. 
Betty, the, the, um, uh, Angela Davis, one of the 10 most wanted people in America now, law degree, PhD professor, Jane high school uh, elementary teacher. In two days, she saw, I, I can't remember, but I think it was Iowa, correct me if I'm wrong, a, a teacher, elementary teacher in Iowa. Mm -hmm. the, the day after, the day that Martin Luther King shot, was shot and killed, she just couldn't take it anymore. She grew up with a racist father, a racist mother, in a racist community, but she did say 80% of the people were good. So, but she couldn't take it anymore. The very next day, she said she slept and she prayed all night of what she was getting ready to do in her classroom. The world knows what she did in her classroom. She had blue eyes, but she made the brown eyes better and the blue eyes low. Made her she said in three minutes after she gave the speech, and who the brown eyes were and what the blue eyes were not. She mm -hmm. said, the girl on the first row, Debbie Hughes, I guess over the years, Debbie's given her the permission to use her name. Debbie Hughes said, but then what are you doing in front of us as a teacher with, those, with them blue eyes? She said within five minutes, she saw. And she said her father and mother lost their business. She got excommunicated from the family because of the mother real relationship, the father who grew up, and she said her whole life heard nothing but the N-word and swear words from her father with his beard overhauls and his shirt with the farmers. She said on the Friday after that, he said after he took his temperature out, after he watched it on 60 minutes after her second show, he cried through his neck and said, if I had watched this when I was nine, for her, whatever you are at nine year old, that was the grave. She said, I would have been a better man and not a racist. And then she said, thank God, that that means you wouldn't have raised me the way you did. But she saw her classrooms in a two-day period become exactly what has happened in America with slavery and, and rights over a four-year period. Jane Elliott, and you will probably get that one. But that very first one, they kept me out of I was a little boy, I think it was Martin Luther King, one year, 68? 1968, yes, sir. That was the first yeah. year she did it. The one that her father saw was the second uh, one she did, which was the next school year, which would have been 69. And we're still talking about Jane Elliott. She still sought all over the world uh, to speak about racism in America. And she said, we, we'll never get over it. Unless whites own it, yes, sir. Uh, that's, that's, create racism on yourself. So I grew up in rural Utah. Okay, so ninety-five percent white people, and there was me and my cousins, right? That made up our high school. Um, and I, I have all these high school friends on Facebook that they share this Candace Owens video about how, you know, uh, when I watched the video initially, because I wanted to, like, see what they were talking about. Is it her and, video that I don't stand with George Floyd? Yeah, the whole George Floyd yeah. thing. Uh, what, what I, I realized is that... To me. What I realized from that video is that she makes them feel okay about what's happening and not... Uh, uh, saying that, you, you know, kind of like 
pandering to their uh, uh, fragility, right? That's all. It's like, they're like fragile, fragile. <laughs> right? They, they can't uh, accept that this has happened in our nation and the people around, um, you know, this is what they've done. This is what's been done to people of color for years and years and years. And they, they don't want to accept it. They don't want to accept it. And they push that video. I, I was so upset because these are high school kids that I know, that I like grew up with. And I knew in my mind that they the subtle racism was there. And they still didn't, like, they still to this day don't want to accept it. Looking for an out. Looking for an out. Looking for an out. Yes. What's so the they what? don't yeah, how do you make white people own that? We can't change everybody, guys. Well, is a but, but and the first step to change is to acknowledge there's a need to change, and then you go about the change process. The change process is not as hard as people want it to be, but it starts with awareness. And I live my life by one rule, and I work by that rule. I live by that rule. I love by that rule. And that is, I try to treat you as I want you to treat me. Not, not, not I treat you like you treat me. And if we all really practice that golden rule that every religion got some form of, the understanding will come easier because you wouldn't be closed off. And, and that's all I have to say to anybody who lives in a point of privilege. They may not be aware. And I can see where you grew up, Daniel, they may not be aware. But with the age of technology and instant TV and so forth, I find it difficult for people to remain closed. So if they're remaining closed, they're making a choice to stay closed. Yeah, not exactly. And that's okay. They're One of the things... Somebody. There is a hell and there is a heaven. They're going to be somebody in both if you believe in such. So everybody's going to be in one or the other. They're going to be in there and they're going to be divided. So, so good exists, evil exists. I get it. So everybody don't want to change. But I know this. The golden rule is always to measure. And whenever I see anybody who's failing to accept reality, I just put it on them. And it's easier to do this with women than it is with men. What One of the things I would like to share. Yeah, what um, if it was your daughter? Uh, what if it was your, your baby boy? That white woman will come over quicker than white men. But if you put it on yourself, then you, have, you start thinking differently. And, and maybe, Daniel, you can use some form of that tactic, that strategy with your friends. I was in a workshop not too long ago on uh, what's the book, Wesley, about poverty uh, that came out about eight years ago, a lot of training behind it. But uh, one of the trainers talked about change in a way that I had never heard before. And it really hit me and made me think differently about some of the whys that you know, white people primarily aren't able to accept these things. Uh, he has shared that for some, change is like death, okay? You've lost something. You've been taught something your entire life, 
and you were taught by people that you love, that you admire, that you look up to. You know, your parents, you may grow up in a home that had racist tendencies. Your religion told you that because most religions were racist as well. Okay, they perpetuated racism. And now somebody's telling you that everything that has been your truth is wrong. You just don't let it go that easy. He said it's like a death, like a grieving process that people have to end up going through. And I never thought about it like that. And I said, wow, that could really make sense. I trust my mom. I trust my dad. I know they love me. Why would they tell me something that's wrong? Why would they teach me this stuff? Why would I grow up believing this? And here you are telling me that everything that was a part of my earlier existence is bad, is wrong, is, you know, all of this. And it's difficult for them to make that distinction and let go of that. Are they going to trust you or are they going to trust me? Are they going to trust what their parents said or this stranger that's trying to teach them diversity and inclusion and all of this stuff? They usually revert back to what was familiar and comfortable, said it's a grieving process. And that made me take another look at why some people just get stuck and cannot move forward. So for so whatever it's, it's, that's worth. It's sort of like something that um, Alicia Washington, who's the owner of Good Company Theater, has said here on our show before. She's talked about how if you know, you have a role to play in, in the conversation. You know, you can speak to your community in a way that, like Miss Betty just said, maybe a stranger is not able. And so you need to recognize that and be that voice when there's an opportunity. Yeah, there was a professor down at BYU that I read some of her work. She used to do a lot of the early diversity training in the state of Utah and across the country. And one of the phenomena that she used in, in her training was that about standing alone. You know, when you speak up in your community, you may lose a friend, you may lose the golf course, you know, privilege, you may use the country club privilege. Some of your family members may not talk to you anymore, invite you to Thanksgiving. And so that's why a lot of people don't stand up and stand alone and push back and correct people when they say things that you know are not right, when they make racial, uh, negative racial statements and things of that nature, that whole concept about standing alone, uh, you have to be, you have to use your courage, you have that, to dig down. That was my call to action. When I went to the march in Ogden and I saw Malik standing up there and talking and you know, everybody's speaking, what are you going to do? That was the promise I made to myself was that I was not going to be afraid to stand alone. That is the one thing I can do awesome. with my privilege is to be able to say, no, you are wrong. And I can, I'm trying not to cry because it's really upsetting and it's well, so frustrating to me in so many levels, yeah. you know, because, and I've talked to these boys about this before, but my roommate, when I, uh, moved to New York. Um, her son is the same age as my daughter and they live in Chicago. And she posted the video of being so afraid to let her son grow up because it is that, that feeling of every day he looks at his skin and go, damn it, I'm black. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. going to cost me. And so I just, she posted after George Floyd's death, just sobbing. And I mean, she's a tough, she was a tough bitch. 
And so to see her bawling, and that's when I just decided I am not going to be afraid to stand alone. And I think when people go, what can I do? Can I give money to the NAACP? Can I give money to the Black Lives Matter? No, you can open your pie hole and you can say you're wrong. Yeah. It's important. I, I, uh, I, I love, I love this, this conversation. I really thank you guys for having this. And I've got one more Jane Elliott story. I <laughs> was at the University of Indiana about a year or so ago, and she was uh, speaking. You know, she's a little short woman. Now she's right here. And she was standing by her words, by, with, in between a tall, she was a speaker, a tall, black, beautiful woman and a tall, white man. And she said they both stood up as part of her exercise, and she started asking a series of questions about privilege. You know, have you ever been threatened by your race? Blah, 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 blah. And of course, all his answer was no. As that woman, what, what is your biggest threat and the, to the black lady? She started crying. This is related to what you said, man. She started, a tear started coming down, and she took about, literally, about a minute before she could speak. She said, I've never said this to anyone ever before, and I can't believe I'm getting ready to see it now. And they were at University of Indiana. And uh, she said, I have two daughters, and I used to pray. The question was something about what do you tell black son when they go out. She said, I used to pray every night that I never have a black son because it's hard enough for black daughters but I could not live with the threat of being able to say goodbye to my son and it's the last time and do that every day. And then Jane's message was to the group that's white privilege. Any of you have to feel that way about your son every day. Any of you wish not to have a son, don't answer that because I know all you white girls want to give your white husband a white son. First and foremost, you were raised that way. That's privilege. And people will never even understand the concept of privilege if you don't break it down to the things that matter most to everybody. What black man wouldn't want a black son? And what and he wouldn't even know that their wife is praying not to ever give him one. Because I see what you have to go through, or I see what your daddy went through, your brothers. I know how to deal with the daughters. I can keep them in line, keep them safe, but I can't with the boys. And that's probably what your friend, if she is a minority, maybe experienced yeah. in Chicago. This was close. Well, and that's what resonated me most is what you just said, is the only way you can understand your privilege is when you break it down by the things you value most. The right. thing that's because most important to you. Values. And it's that's what clarified values. it. Yeah, that's what clarified it the most to me, you know, is when you hear our children are the same age, one is black and one is white and one will be preyed upon just because of their skin color. Yeah, that was going to be my call to action because I think the biggest thing that we need right now is for people to put themselves in people of color shoes. Uh, so for me, it's when I read the stories of moms who have to teach their black kids how to be careful when they go out or be 
utmost respectful when they talk to police, utmost obedient. Um, those kind of narratives just tear me up. Or when I see a father who is talking about how he had to be, you know, completely submissive because he's just thinking about how he needs to get home to his kids. Um, that's the stuff that resonates with me. But you need to go, you, you need to educate yourself on like the actual life experiences these people are having. Put yourself in that position because there's no, uh, I don't know. Well, my, my community, there was another side of that. Within the home structure, and, and a lot of times when you're outside of that culture, you may not get it. And I'm not saying this was widespread across African-American communities, but I'm sure Biddy even knows somebody who's had a similar family. Punishment would be tougher. And Mama had a saying, I'd rather kill you than they let you get out of here and the white man kill you. At least you'll be dying with me. Of course, they didn't literally mean kill you, but you sometimes you say, Mama, I wish I would. We love that. The punishment will be purposeful, deliberate, and oftentimes more painful than might be considered in another culture because that punishment wouldn't be nowhere near where it would be if you did not act accordingly outside of this family, this community, this village. And, and, and that's just many, many people unprivileged or underprivileged, they experience similar things growing up. Well, for us, it saves a lot of us from everything. However crazy that may sound, you, and, and Betty, you can attest to this, at least I'm here. I'm alive. You guys probably saw that in Color Purple. That I'm here. I'm alive, Celie said. Yeah, as a mother of four sons. And and you know how it is. One 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 son will bring home three friends, and the other will bring. So my house was a Kool Aid house down from Ogden High. So it was nothing to have uh, a house full of boys, all races and ethnicities, because my sons were student athletes. They were nice people, and so they bring their friends home and they'd hang out, and we'd have these conversations. Yeah, I went to lunch recently with. Um with Daniel Matthews and he, yes. told, he told me, he told me the, the first time that uh, you sat him down and told him about what Juneteenth was all about. Yeah. Cause so, he, was in a, he was in a similar boat. He had no idea. And coming yeah. from, you know, like so will there Dr. be Blankenship. a celebration of Juneteenth then? Is there we're, something we're, planned? We're doing, we're doing virtual stuff. We had a lunch and learn uh, webinar today on business wealth and we're with all with uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, one of their VPs, uh, led that discussion. It was really good. And uh, so we have virtual things lined up for the whole week, starting today through next Sunday. And uh, we have a caravan that we had planned through uh, it, the whole inner city, historic 25th Street and all of that. And I just got a message from the Arts Council to change our route because Farmer's Market is this weekend. And so uh, Farmer's Market will be on next Saturday. And so uh, they were giving us one 
street three blocks to drive cars and motorcycles. I don't think that's going to really work. So I had to come up with plan B. But we did want to do something symbolic uh, for an outdoor event, but we didn't want to take the chance of getting people sick and being liable for that. So um, we are having virtual, um, we're doing the film BOSS, B-O-S-S, all caps, with Stanley Nelson on Tuesday night. And we partnered with the Utah Film Center for that. And we have a panel that's going to talk about Black wealth and work from out of slavery to having, you know, some millionaires and billionaires uh, today and what that struggle looked like. And they'll talk about Wall Street, Black Wall Street in Tulsa as well. And then we are having uh, another online event on our town, our story that we have connected with the African-American Historical and Genealogical Society and the African-American Storytelling Group. So they're talking about lifting our narratives and sharing our stories and looking into our history and culture and making that information available. And then we're going to be doing our historic Black town hall meeting every Friday for the last five years. We've kicked off Juneteenth with the State of Black Utah town hall meeting. And we're doing that again Friday, next Friday night on Juneteenth Day, June the 19th. And we partnered with the Multicultural uh, Division of Multicultural Affairs to uh, host that with us on that night. And we're focusing on emerging leaders, our young adults, giving them a voice, talking about uh, mind, body, and spirit, mental health in times of crises. Because this is a part of all of this that people don't really see and understand. Uh, a part of this legacy, a byproduct, has been these years of trauma and terror. And that affects you. And if you don't have places to go and things to do to receive the health and care that you need, you break down. You end up, you know, using illegal drugs. You end up uh, in domestic violence. All kinds of things happen. And so this is about healing ourselves and connecting with resources that can help with the mental health. You know, I think one of the things with George Floyd that, and we hear this all over and over, that struck everybody so much was seeing somebody actually murdered in front of your eyes for almost nine minutes. You know, it's one thing to boom, shoot somebody. Oh, wow, that was terrible. You know, we've seen that before, but everybody I think was able to feel, let them up, what's going on? You know, all of this. And so that, that trauma plays in somebody's mind over and over and over again, and we need help. And, and some of this stuff, even if you're a, a spiritual person, can't be necessarily prayed away. You may need to go somewhere else and get additional help and be okay with saying, I need help. And so that'll be a part of our conversation on Friday night. And then Saturday, both Saturday and Sunday from two to six, we're gonna have entertainment uh, live streamed uh, for about four to six hours that day. And then that evening on Saturday and Sunday, uh, we partnered with Excellence in Community and they're gonna do a concert from eight to about 9.30 on Saturday and Sunday night that they'll stream as well for us. And we'll be able to get all those links and all that up. So yeah, that, I will definitely get all of that. Too yeah, because I'm already like excited and 
you know, we could use a little uh, diversity in this little house during the weekend. So yeah, okay. I, I want to, I want to see it. <laughs> Lift it up. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's, so like we said at the top of the show, if you're interested in any of the events that Miss Betty just mentioned, um, you can go to weber.edu slash Juneteenth. And uh, there will, there'll be more information there. We'll also be sharing it in the Junction City Forum, which is our Facebook group. We'll be sharing some of these events, which are up on Facebook. Well, I think some of us have already RSVP'd to them on Facebook. So we'll be sharing those in there as well. So you can take part in a lot of these virtual events that are happening, uh, you know, because of COVID-19. So uh, Ms. Betty and Dr. Boykin, I wanted to thank you both for being willing to come on the Junction City podcast tonight and chat through some of this stuff. We really appreciate you being willing to take the time and share your points of view. Yeah, and we you. appreciate the opportunity to be here, the work that you all are doing, yes. different voices and conversations in our community that are really important. So thank you all. Yes, thank ma'am. you. And I yes. promise you guys, before the end of this year, I'm going to do my best to get Miss Jane Elliott and Angela Davis here and guys <laughs> to be there with me. <laughs> I would miss it. Great. I can remember learning about that when I had psychology in yeah, uh, exactly. state. Yeah. Wonderful. And I believe in reparations, so I just need to leave you with, with that tonight. Uh, there's a price that needs to be paid. I hear people talking about, oh, don't give me money or do college tuition. If you give me my money, I can pay my own kids tuition, okay? I don't need someone doing it for me. And everyone else that has experienced a Holocaust and these kinds of atrocities yeah. have been paid. So what yeah. is the problem with paying black folks? What's because the holdup? What's wrong? You yeah, this is the thing that I. Yeah, that's the that's the whole I, that's a whole nother show. I want to, you know, I just like <laughs> listening to, and I've heard talk of it before, but listening to Reverend Al Sharpton, it really sparked in me. You that's know, researching and it is what needs to you. happen. So, it needs to happen. It needs yeah. to happen. Yeah. If you can write a check on those corporations these yeah. last months for some COVID, give me a day go break. You got money. Yeah. So I don't want to hear that lie. Mm-hmm. And who walked away with the money? It wasn't small businesses. You know, it, it wasn't 25th Street businesses. Okay? So I don't want to hear we don't have any money. You have money. You, you use it for what you wanted. You subsidize uh, national sports. You subsidize everything else. And when it comes to giving here, you want to talk affirmative action and something for nothing and bootstraps and all of that foolishness. No, we're not buying that lie this week. Yes, ma'am. Thank well, you. Yeah, we, we appreciate you folks coming on. And uh, like Meg said, I think it's a great conversation to have in the future about the uh, the impact, especially, uh, you know, in communities of color and uh, what, you know, giving, giving a slice of the pie back to the folks who created some of that value and some of that wealth, you know, that's a conversation we should have, but, um, but uh, we appreciate you folks, like you said, and uh, like we say every week, all all politics politics is local. local. Oh, oh, there you go.